All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Hey guys, and welcome back to Your Brain on Science. Today, we're going to have a chat about predictive coding and how our brain predicts the world around us. I am so excited to have you guys back. I hope everyone's been doing well. It's been a few episodes for me, so a long time no chat, but today we're going to talk about one of, I think, the most interesting neuroscientific models or theories out there, um, and it's the model of predictive coding. So we'll talk about it and what it means and also how it comports in terms of psychedelic effects. So to start, I want us to all close our eyes and think about this scenario. You're out for a walk in some big city and you see in the distance a small blob running towards you. You can't see it really well, but you think to yourself, okay, it's small enough. Maybe it's a raccoon or a rogue squirrel or something and it's close enough to the ground to be those things, right? Then it gets a little bit closer and you realize, okay, it's small, but it's not that small. Um, and it's also white with black and brown spots. And then you can see a lead or something dragging behind it on the ground. Then you think to yourself, okay, this probably isn't a bear or a mountain lion or something like that because it's not big enough. And also I am in a random city street. So in the same vein, it's probably not a tiger or a lion that's charging at me. And that thing that's flowing behind it maybe kind of looks like it's a leash. So you know what? It might not be a wild animal. Then you go on to predict that this is probably a dog running at you. So you gently step to the side and sure enough, it comes into view and it's a dog that's run away from its owner and it blows right past you just as the owner comes into view chasing right behind it. So what happened in this process? So you were alerted to some stimuli in your environment, right? A dog that's running at you in the distance. Then you formed a series of predictions about it, what it is, what its likely behavior is going to be. Then you change your predictions based on some new information that you got as that animal got closer, and then you reacted accordingly. So this is a very pretty packaged example, but our brains are doing a version of this process constantly, taking information from our environment, using past predictions and past knowledge, what we refer to as priors, things that are known and that are sort of ingrained, um, to form a prediction on the current environment or the or the current incoming stimuli. Then integrating any of this new incoming information that doesn't necessarily comport with the current prediction, right? That's going to form a prediction error, which will then serve to update the current prediction and then produce an appropriate behavioral or cognitive response or whatever it might be. Um, so this process of having a prediction, getting some inter internal stimuli, getting some error signal related to that prediction and what is actually out there, right? Generating a mathematical error signal and then updating your predictions to incorporate that new information that you got. So the way that I just talked to you about this is through a very bottom-up lens, right? So we're getting sensory input and responding to stimuli in our environment, something that's outside of us. And then we're generating responses to uh, to this in our brain and using engagement of our higher cortical areas. So we're going very bottom up, right? So from the level of outside, uh, some sensory stimuli comes in from the outside, right? And it travels up to the level of our higher order cortical areas to have some sort of response. But the top-down component to this is essential to understand as well. So we're going to talk about that now. 
So our brain actually forms a hierarchically organized model. So what this means is at any two levels of the model or the process that we're talking about, the higher organized area is going to be the one that generates the predictions of what the stimuli will be from the lower order areas or the lower levels. Um, so the sensory information is ascending, right? We're getting that from the outside. And so our prediction errors are also going to be ascending because those prediction errors are, again, a measure of what prediction we already have, what's actually in the environment. So when these errors meet the descending predictions, there is then an updating of those predictions. And this is all done to reduce any surprise or any sort of perturbation. Your brain wants to be prepared, super prepared for what's happening now or what's going to happen next. And it wants to reduce any noise or randomness. And we want to sort of be able to explain away whatever sensory input that we are getting. So you've heard a lot about like filling in the blanks for yourself, right? You, um, oh my God, I'm sure that you guys have come across uh, like those sentences where the first letter of the word is correct and then the rest of the word is all jumbled, but we somehow read the entire sentence perfectly, right? And it's because our brain is using priors to form predictions about what that word's going to be. Um, and we are sort of powering through because our the precision of our priors is so, so, so strong. And we'll talk about the precision in just one second. So I just mentioned precision. So in all of this, there's an estimation of sorts being made, a signal to noise ratio of prediction errors that's going to affect how these errors are actually used to update those predictions across that hierarchy. So this is going to tell us something about the certainty of sensory signals, and we're going to call this precision. Precision can also be used for top-down processes, and that's how I just explained it to you. Um, and it's often thought of as a probability even. So if you're very confident in your belief or your prior, you're going to have high precision. And the probability of your having an error signal is going to be low, right? Because you have so much confidence um, in this belief, in this prior, and there's high precision, right? So that high precision is going to be associated with lower probability of an error signal. So precision at higher levels of the hierarchy can also represent a person's confidence in their beliefs or sort of maybe how deeply embedded they are. Um, and this is going to cause your precision to redirect attentional resources from some things that you think are, are maybe, you know, you know, very confidently. So in this, you can see that precision might actually also have something to do with your sense of self, right? If it's maybe tied to your confidence and your view of yourself and, and sort of what you know. Um, so I say that all with a question mark. I hope you heard it all with a question mark because I don't actually know if that's true. There isn't any solid data to back that. Um, but I think it's an interesting idea, especially the way that um, precision is, I think, canonically presented to us. Um, at least it's something that has come up uh, for me in, in my readings. So I hope you guys have some ideas about that. In the last year, actually, a paper came out titled Reduced Precision Underwrites Ego Dissolution and Therapeutic Outcomes Under Psychedelics, um, in which the authors posit that ego dissolution is actually due to the reduction of precision in a predictive coding framework. So ego dissolution, we've talked about quite a bit, um, but it's a phenomenon when an individual under the experience of psychedelics, or it doesn't have to be, you know, under the experience of psychedelics, it could be any sort of mind altering uh, consciousness altering experience, even meditation can, I think, help people achieve ego dissolution. Um, but ego dissolution is a phenomenon when a person sort of uh, becomes part of the 
bigger milieu, right? They lose a sense of self as one person in this vast world, rather uh, become maybe part of that world, right? Your ego disappears. You are not a singular being in this world. And now I'm giving you a lot of flowery language to describe it. Um, but ego dissolution, whenever someone asks me that, it, to me, I'm just like, it's when your ego dissolutes, which is very unhelpful. Um, but anyway, okay. <laughs> so that's what ego dissolution is. And the authors in this paper posit that this arises due to a reduction of our precisions. So we know through the anarchic brain model, and this is the model proposed by Carhart Harris and colleagues, uh, that psychedelics are thought to relax our priors or reduce the confidence in those known circuits. So in that paper by Carhart Harris and Friston, they suggest that the reduced precision of these prior beliefs while under the influence of psychedelics can actually work to increase the range of possible hypotheses that can be entertained. And this makes sense, right? Because now you have less of an emphasis on those priors. You're relying less on sort of what you know. So now the possibilities are kind of endless, right? So now greater attentional resources can be all... So now greater attentional resources can actually be allocated to alternate hypotheses, alternate hypotheses that might be beneficial or adaptive, right? In the case of psychopathology, I think this gets really, really interesting. So oftentimes um, in the case of psychopathology, such as depression or maybe even anxiety, you're looking to break out of those rumination patterns, right? The patterns of going over the same thing over and over and over um, and also engaging in behaviors that you know aren't helpful or efficient or adaptive, right? Um, and those pre-existing maladaptive patterns. So if we consider those to be your priors, then under psychedelics, those are relaxed and you're able to experience and consider new patterns that are going to be helpful and adaptive. And indeed, I think that's sort of the hypothesis and the argument that a lot of people make. I think it's definitely an interesting one um, and one that definitely needs a lot more empirical evidence to sort of back it up and, and provide data for it. So in all of this, you can imagine that this isn't just happening right in a vacuum. There's going to be various networks across the brain that are going to be recruited or active during this predictive processing. Um, so there's two that I want to point out right away. And these are the attentional network, which I've already kind of mentioned, and a salience network. Um, so the attentional network is going to do exactly what it sounds like it's going to do. It's going to direct attentional resources to where it is appropriate. And the salience network is going to function as a sort of a switch between networks. So for example, the attention network um, or the executive network, the salience network is going to decide or sort of switch between these two networks when it is appropriate. And the precision of your priors or of the precision of your incoming sensory information is going to have a big effect on which of these networks is actually recruited and the total level of global network engagement, I think, across hierarchical levels. So another thing that is coming to my mind, and hopefully it's coming to your mind as well, um, is our perception of the environment, right? So I keep talking about we're getting some sort of sensory input and then we're responding, right? We are responding, but we're also forming a perception of our environment, right? We're forming this view of whatever we're experiencing based on some of that sensory input that we're getting and our predictions. So if we are constantly predicting about the environment and functioning based on those predictions, right? What is perception? How accurate is our perception? How accurate is our perception of the environment currently? And how are we making sure that we're collecting the appropriate sensory data that we need? How, how do you know that we're not missing anything, right? In our perception. 
Well, our perception of the world is a very top-down inference from our brain about the cause of these sensory signals. Therefore, you're going to respond in a way that's in line with your predictions until you receive some feedback that's going to generate that error signal in your prediction, which is going to cause that prediction to update and thereby alter your perception of the environment. So it's a highly top-down sort of deductive inference process. Now, you might have heard that perception can be thought of as a controlled hallucination, that perception is a controlled hallucination. So this is actually an idea that I first heard from Anil Seth, who's a fantastic cognitive neuroscientist out of England. And I think this idea is especially interesting for us to consider in terms of psychedelics, right? So the idea is that because we're experiencing our environment based on these top-down predictions, right? Everything we are experiencing is a product of our brain processing and updating sensory feedback and then filling in the rest of the blanks for us. So partly we are creating our own reality, right? And this could be an equally scary or freeing thought, I think, but let's use an example. So say that we're back on that street, right? Back on that city street. I can smell fresh cut grass. And I know that I just walked past a tiny little house with a tiny little lawn. And it looks like that it was just shorn. So I'm expecting to see maybe a lawnmower, maybe hear those sounds somewhere coming up but I don't see or experience any of the grass being cut. And I also don't hear any of those sounds. So I conclude that the grass was likely cut before I even got there, right? And my brain filled in all the rest of that for me based on that sensory feedback that I got from the environment. And my priors that tell me that, you know, if grass is looking short um, and if there's like that fresh cut grass smell in the air, then it's likely that grass was just freshly cut, right? So now say I, I go through all of this, right? I turn around and I see that there is shorn grass, but I'm not seeing a lawnmower or hearing anyone cut grass. But now imagine that that sensory stimuli isn't generating an error signal in my brain, right? It's not causing an update of those predictions, so to speak. So my perception of this grass being cut right now, which is incorrect, is not changing. So this perception now becomes very uncontrolled, right? Now we are in uncontrolled territory. Those error signals are not generating and those prior predictions that I have are not updating. So these prediction errors are not reigning in these predictions and the incoming sensory simulation is not generating any er error signals and it's sort of, you know, coming in consistently and constantly. These predictions can go off of the rails, so to speak. So the idea that our perception is a very controlled hallucination is interesting. And now you can imagine that it becomes interesting and important in, the, in terms of psychopathology, schizophrenia, um, and altered states of consciousness. So last year, again, last year was a great year for psychedelic science, I think. <laughs> Actually, uh, a paper titled Psychedelics and Schizophrenia, Distinct Alterations to Bayesian Inference came out. And the study in this paper looked at measures of complexity and connectivity in the brain while an individual was under the influence of LSD or in the brains of individuals with schizophrenia. And they compared all of this to controls. They found that individuals under the influence of LSD or ketamine showed increase in brain signal complexity as compared to controls and patients with schizophrenia showed both increases in complexity, but also increased transfer entropy. And transfer entropy tells us something about brain connectivity. So now these were some great results, right? But they also used a Bayesian inference model of predictive processing to see if they could mathematically model these results. And they found that if they decreased the precision of their priors 
in their mathematical model. They could recreate their experimental results with the LSD and ketamine groups. And if they increased sensory precision, so this is more bottom up, right, of that incoming sensory input, they could recreate their experimental results with the schizophrenia group. So this fits in with what we just talked about, right? So hallucinations being a result of increased sensory precision with no change to the error signals and the precision of the priors or how any of this these incoming sensory signals are integrated, right? So heavy emphasis on incoming stimuli without necessarily adjusting the how do you deal with any of this or how do you deal with any of the aberrations in the environment. Also, interestingly, right? So talking about the LSD and ketamine group, they found that if they decrease the precision of the priors, that's when they were able to recreate their experimental results. And that's what we just talked about, right? So under the experience of psychedelics, your priors are heavily relaxed. So everything that you have a confident belief in, so all of those behavioral patterns that are so well ingrained, your your priors, the precision of those priors decreased, and you were able to replicate those experimental results. Um, So I think a really, really interesting study, and this falls very nicely in line with some of the ideas um, surrounding the uh, predictive processing framework in psychedelics. So these are, I think, you know, some, again, very interesting ideas that have a lot of potential. But what I've just talked about is by no means a comprehensive look at how people are using the predictive processing model in the field of psychedelics. I think something interesting to understand here is how a lot of the constructs we find to be integral in therapeutic outcomes in, in psychedelic therapy sort of fit into this framework. So say, for example, the emotion awe, right? The feeling of awe that is so closely related to psychedelic experience. We have data that tells us that the more intense a trip, the more likely it is that someone is going to experience therapeutic benefit. And one aspect of the intensity of that subjective experience is awe, is that emotion of awe, right? And an individual can experience awe in a very positive, this is amazing, this is life-changing, oh my God, I can't believe that I'm experiencing this, you know, like very positive way. But also awe can be experienced in a very negative way. You're, you know, just in awe of how large and great this is and it's overwhelming and it's anxiety inducing maybe. And it's in, and it could be a negative experience as well, right? So how does this exactly fit into our predictive processing framework? Well, it doesn't directly. We know that emotions are a large part of how we react to and process information. So they're has to be a role of emotion in all of this, right? Um, Perhaps it's in the appraisal of the environmental uh, stimuli that's incoming. This field of affective neuroscience is actively working to consolidate emotion into some mathematical model or this predictive processing framework. And so far, you know, it points to emotion being an integral part of this predictive process, um, just like cognition is. But the role here still has to be uh, clarified, I think. So I hope that I left you guys with some thoughts, some ideas, some questions maybe. Predictive coding is really a huge idea and someone can teach a whole two semester course on it probably honestly. Um, And the way in which this intersects with psychedelics I think is something that's very interesting and has a ton of utility. The use of of this framework in models that we see now in papers is is growing and I'm very happy to see that. If you guys are interested, there can definitely be a predictive processing part two, uh, an updated episode based on some new information I received from the field. Ah, see how we did that? Um, So (laughs) with that, I'd like to say thank you guys for listening. And as always, please subscribe and engage with us. I have to tell you, 
we have the craziest lineup of people coming up. And I know everyone says that, right? My podcast is crazy, Um, but I genuinely mean it. So please.